Now, let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 20. Hebrews 6, 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that your word is true, and we know it is true because also you are true. Your word is truth, and you are truth. There is nothing that is evil, there's nothing that's wrong, there's nothing false in you. We pray, Father, that as Abraham believed in this, that you will draw us to believe in these same truths, that we might set before us the hope of your promise, the many things that you have granted us and promised to us in your word, may those be precious and sweet to us and nothing else. May the world pass away and all that is in it pass away, and may we put our hope completely on you. In the name of Christ, amen. Jeremiah the prophet said in 17 verse 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitants. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Whether Jeremiah the prophet or our apostle here in the letter to the Hebrews, they are both encouraging us not to put our trust in man, not to put our trust in the words of man, in the inventions of man. Nothing that man produces should be our hope, should be our trust. Our faith should not reside, should not repose in any man. It should only put its confidence, its hope, its rest on God himself and in the word of God itself. Whatever the Word of God says, whatever it promises, that should be our hope. Our faith should be in that. It should be in that because we know the source, we know God Himself. Well, at this point in chapter 6, 
when he's writing about Abraham, this is right after he has explained a word of encouragement to encourage the believers to press on with diligence in their faith. And he says in 6 verse 12, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's encouraging us to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Notice how he puts the two together, faith and patience, and imitate those who had faith and patience. Now, in our passage, verses 13 to 20, he uses as an illustration the man that the Bible uses as the greatest example of faith. That's Abraham. He's using Abraham as this example of faith for us to learn from him and his example what happened in his life in the book of Genesis, especially chapters 12 to 25 in the book of Genesis. We have a detailed explanation of what God promised to him in Genesis 12 to 25. And from that point onwards, he becomes the model. He becomes the example for us to follow throughout the rest of the Bible. In many places of the Bible, Abraham is set forth as an example. He was a man just like us. He was even a sinful man just like us before his conversion. He was dead in his trespasses and sins. He worshiped idols. He needed to be redeemed from all that. God needed to give his grace to Abraham so that he repented of his idolatry and put faith in the gospel of Christ. Joshua 24, verse 2 and 14 and 15 explain that Abraham and his ancestors used to worship idols, therefore they needed redemption. And we also learn from Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham had faith and faith in the future promises of God. So he becomes a perfect model for us. And even a perfect model for us in believing in the gospel, as it says in Galatians chapter 3. Abraham is set forth as an example of one who believed in the gospel of Christ. So that, that's what he does here. The focus in our passage, in verses 13 to 20, is on knowing that it is God himself, since no one is greater than him, who made this promise. And when he made this promise, he not only gave his word, but he interposed it or buttressed it with an oath. He swore an oath, a solemn oath, in order to assure Abraham that what he promised to Abraham would certainly come about. Therefore, Abraham perfectly describes how we should not put our hope in man, the word of man, the inventions of man, the imaginations and speculations of man, but put our hope in God alone by means of the word of God alone. Let's see how he explains this. Verse 13, for when, men, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. When God made the promise to Abraham, not the first time he made the promise, but a later time, likely in Genesis twenty-two sixteen, that's where we read that it says, I will surely bless you, I swear by myself. Genesis twenty-two sixteen. swear by myself. God, when he made this promise to Abraham, 
he swore or he pronounced an oath. Now this swearing is not profane swearing, it's not the use of curse words, not obscenities or anything like that. When the Bible says swear, it means swear an oath. To solemnly promise or say something, make it official so that there is no turning back from that. There is no reneging and breaking that vow or breaking that promise. That's what the Bible means by swearing. And when God did that to Abraham, he, it says there in verse 13, he swore by no one greater. He could swear by no one greater. That phrase right there is meant to highlight the fact that there is no God above God. God does not have any contemporaries. He has no associates. He has nobody like that. There is not a pantheon of gods, contrary to Hinduism, Buddhism, European paganism, Greek paganism, Roman paganism, contrary to any religion that teaches that God has an equal or that he has other inferior deities or someone who, that was created before him or existed before him, such as Mormonism teaches. No, all of these religions are false. There is no one greater than the God that we worship, the true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no one greater than our God. He is the only true and living God. That's why he says he could swear by no one greater, because he's the only one. He swore by himself. He used himself as a way to reiterate, a way to buttress, and a way to verify this word, he swore by himself. Saying, verse 14, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Not only did he swear, but he repeated the promise. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. It should have been enough and it would have been enough for God to simply say, I will bless you. I will multiply you. It would have been enough because it's God himself. But God... He adds words such as surely in order not for God to be held accountable, not for God, that, that uh, God needed it in some way, but for Abraham and for us to have strong encouragement as he tells us later. It was for our benefit that God says, surely, certainly, absolutely, I will bless you. And absolutely, I will multiply you and I'm swearing by myself. That's why God says it that way. He doesn't say it for his own benefit. He says it for our benefit, for Abraham and those who hear this word of Christ. That Abraham would be blessed and Abraham would be multiplied. Now, this has a threefold significance. In the book of Genesis and throughout the Bible, there is a threefold significance to the blessing or the multiplication of Abraham. The threefold. One, that he would have physical descendants. He would have physical descendants like the stars of the heavens, innumerable as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of the seashore. That's one. Which was fulfilled in due time. And then the second one is the spiritual descendants. That there would be spiritual descendants who would be children of Abraham by faith in the word of Christ. That they would be children of Abraham, spiritual children, whether or not 
They are from his bloodline. Whether they are from his own genealogy and lineage does not matter. People of various nations can be and will be children of Abraham by faith in the word of Christ. That's the second way in which that is explained. By the way, for the first example, we see that fulfilled in Exodus chapter 1. In Exodus 1, in Egypt, the people of Israel became mightier and stronger in number than the Egyptians, and they were threatened by it. So they were innumerable. And we know from the Exodus that there were likely millions upon millions of the sons of Israel who left Egypt through the wilderness by the hand of Moses. Then in the spiritual sense, descendants of Abraham, this is in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, throughout the chapter, especially verses 6 until the end of the chapter, 3, 6 to 29, that we are offspring or descendants of Abraham through faith in Christ. And even we read in our congregational reading, Galatians 3, where it says in 3.14, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This is also for us. That's the second sense in which God meant that he would multiply Abraham. And there is a third way in which he would bless and multiply. That is, in Christ, in Christ, the person of Christ, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, in him, he was a physical descendant of Abraham, and also, because of what he accomplished on the cross for us, he is the source or the reason, the foundation or the basis on which we are grafted in and become a part of the family of God. We are adopted into the family of God, not based on our goodness or works, but because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, and that's what makes it possible for the Father to send the Son into the world for the Holy Spirit to make us children of God. That's the way in which God promised Abraham. Abraham understood these truths. And all of the faithful of the Old Testament understood these truths. And they were enjoying these benefits. Why? Because they put their faith in God, whose word they praised. From Psalm 56. From Psalm 56, they put their hope in God, whose word they praised. They praised his word because they put their hope in those promises. And these are explained by example in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews 11, going from the book of Genesis, early in the book of Genesis and throughout the Old Testament, he gives example of, after example of men and women of faith who believed in what we're saying. They believed it in some of their cases even to a bitter death. They believed all these truths. Now Abraham, back to Abraham in verse 15, he says, And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Now, our apostle does not mean that Abraham, after waiting patiently, he obtained every aspect of the promise, but he saw glimpses of it. 
He saw tangible evidence of it. He saw that in the case of Isaac. He had to, in the case of Isaac, who became to him a physical descendant, a spiritual descendant, because Isaac also had faith, and also he became one who put his faith in Christ as well. All three came true in Isaac, son of the promise, as the scripture says. Isaac was that. But how long, it says here, and thus having patiently waited. God said all those things to Abraham for many, many years, but it says here that Abraham had to patiently wait or patiently hope in what God said. We know from Genesis 12, verse 4, Genesis 12, verse 4, that when Abraham was 75 years old, he entered the land of Canaan. When Abraham was 75 years old, he entered the land of Canaan. And then we also know from Genesis 17 and Genesis 21, Genesis 17 and Genesis 21, that Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. 100 years old when Isaac was born, which means that God's promise to Abraham took Abraham 25 years in waiting for it. And the only son born of Sarah, and the only child born of Sarah, was Isaac. So though God said his descendants physically and spiritually, and even Christ himself, would come from him, he did not live to see the many things down the road. He only lived to see Isaac born, miraculously, after waiting 25 years. That's the kind of faith Abraham had. He waited patiently. He waited patiently, and God answered him in due time, miraculously, in due time. He proceeds to explain, verse 16. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given uh, as confirmation is an end of every dispute. He is using an analogy, the lesser to the greater. First, the lesser. When men swear oaths, they swear these oaths usually in the case of legal matters. We present ourselves before the judge and we swear an oath to tell the truth. And we usually do it by one greater than ourselves. That's why we typically will put our hand on the Bible and swear to God, because God is greater than us. And whatever we say should be true, should be honest, forthright, whatever we say. And we are swearing that if we don't tell the truth, then whatever penalty God inflicts upon us, even through the civil magistrate, even through the government, whatever penalty God inflicts upon us is our due penalty. And when we do so, it heightens the importance. It heightens the solemnity of what we are saying so that we are holding ourselves accountable and it takes away, with a, pers uh, a person who has a conscience, this assumes a person with a conscience, it takes away from him his temptation to tell a lie, to bear false witness in the courtroom. It takes that away, knowing 
that there will be a penalty, a just penalty for doing so. And that's why he says, it's a confirmation and an end of every dispute. We will not quarrel like we did outside the courtroom. We now in the courtroom, we cannot be that way. We have to tell the truth. And accordingly, as the process takes its place, when it's done properly, it should and will end every dispute. That's the way it should be. That's the way it happens in human affairs. That's what happens with human disputes, legal disputes. Verse 17, in the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge and laying hold of the hope set before us. In the same way, God. In the same way. He's comparing what we do with what God has done. God desired when he pronounced his word and swore with an oath. He desired to do what? Verse 17. To show the heirs of the promise. And in verse 18. We may have strong encouragement. When God does it this way. He doesn't do it because there is something deficient in him, that God is susceptible to lying, that God is susceptible to forgetfulness. He's not saying it because God himself does not know all things and control all things. He's not saying it for any weakness or deficiency in God himself. He's doing it because we are weak, because we are deficient, because we need to know for certain that what God has said will actually happen. So God, in His love, in His grace, in His mercy towards us as weak vessels, He not only uh, pronounces His word, but He interposes it or squares in order to say that His word will certainly take place. He does it for our benefit. Now, if the God of heaven does it for our benefit, we should be encouraged. We should put our confidence in that word. Whatever he has said about us and about our future, we should put our hope in that. Nothing else should matter. Only that. Because it's meant for our strong encouragement. We also see in verses 17 and 18, he says that he did this to show the unchangeableness of his purpose. It's unchangeable. His word is unchangeable. Whatever God says will happen, will happen. But also the oath is unchangeable. Whatever God swears will take place. He wanted to show that it is impossible for God to lie because of who God is. God will not lie. He will not deceive he will not renege. He will not break his promises. He will not breach the covenant. He will not do anything like that. Whatever he says will take place. It will take place because God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, will he not do it? And has he spoken? And will he not make it good? Numbers 23, 19. Numbers 23, 19. And Samuel said to Saul, 
the glory of Israel will not lie nor change his mind. 1 Samuel 15, 29. 15, 29. The glory of Israel will not lie nor change his mind. He did it this way to give us confidence, to build up our faith. And not only did he do it that way, but we've been saying promise. A promise is not a curse. A promise is not a threat. What has he set before us? In verse 18 he says, that we who have fled for refuge and laying hold of the hope set before us. We have fled for refuge in the hope set before us. What is the relationship of faith and hope? What is the relationship of faith and hope? Faith is what we exert as a gift of God. We exert that faith, but hope is that in which we are putting our faith. What is set before us are good things. What's set before us are things that last forever. What is set before us are invisible things, intangible things, things that we cannot touch right now. Those are the things set before us, and he calls these things hope. That is, we will be released completely from sin. No more to experience sin forever and ever. No more will we experience any pain. No more tears. No more death. Nothing of the evils that we experience now in this world will happen ever again to us. We will be resurrected from the dead. Our bodies will be raised gloriously uh, with immortality, completely, fully. We will not come back in the world again and again. That's a hopeless faith. That's a hopeless religion that teaches that we as people or persons will come back into this world again and again. That is hopeless, that is miserable to believe in that. Not only that, but it's also hopeless and miserable to believe that once we die, we are annihilated, or that we are extinguished, that we do not have any existence ever again. That is also hopeless, it's meaningless. No. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that there is hope set before us. We will be with our personal God and Creator and Redeemer. We will be with Him forever. We will be with Him, this eternal, infinite God, forever and ever. The one who loves us, the one who redeems us in Christ. This is the one with whom we will share all eternity. No more misery. In, in this world, no more evils in this world, but be with him forever. That is better than being annihilated. That is better than being reincarnated. Because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me shall never die. Because I live, you shall live also. 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one, that, and one which enters within the veil. From 18 he says, we have fled for refuge, and in 19 he says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. And because we have this anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast, sure and steadfast, an anchor or a refuge for the ship 
is necessary. When there are tumultuous waves, when there are tidal waves, when it's dark, when the storms are there, when the rain is falling down heavily, the ship needs to be in a safe place. It needs to be in a safe place to weather the storm. And he says here, our faith is like that. This hope is like that. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Our soul needs an anchor because the world and all of the afflictions and all of the uncertainties of the world and all of the persecutions of the world, they come against us. They attack us. They ram against us. They threaten to break up the ship. They threaten to drown us all. That's what happens in the world. But we don't have anything to worry about because the hope that we have is an anchor for us. It's a sure and steadfast hope. We take refuge there. We, take, we flee there to that refuge for us to be secure in our faith. The hope that we put before us helps us to patiently persevere, to endure all things, to endure whatever afflictions in any hardship that comes our way, we overcome them because we put our hope in God and in His Word that we praise. Further, someone has already done this. Verses 19 and 20. He says, We have this sure and steadfast hope anchor, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Christ has already gone up there. Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. The disciples saw him in Acts chapter 1 visibly with their own eyes. They witnessed him ascending into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. Even Stephen saw the Son of Man at the right hand of the Father in Acts chapter 7. He saw Jesus there. That's where he is. And he went there as a forerunner. And why is there a forerunner? A forerunner is necessary because there are other runners behind. A forerunner is necessary to lead the way, to blaze the trail ahead of us. And Jesus has done that. He has literally done that. We're not talking about mythology. We're not talking about legend. We're not talking about any fictions. We're talking about facts. Jesus was alive after his resurrection for a period of 40 days. Acts chapter 1. With many convincing proofs, he manifested himself to the people. And then he ascended into heaven in the presence of his disciples. This actually happened. He went there as a forerunner. So because he preceded us, he went there first. He is assuring us that we will reach there too. You see, also, he says, he enters within the veil. The veil of the tabernacle and temple of the Old Testament, that veil could only be approached or entered with blood once a year by the high priest. On the Day of Atonement, once a year with blood, he would enter that veil, and that was there to signify the fact that Jesus would one day enter into heaven with his own blood having been accomplished on the earth 
to precede and be our, our forerunner so that we could also enter that veil. That's why when he died on the cross, the veil of the temple literally was torn in two from top to bottom. From top to bottom, not from bottom to top as though some man did it, but from top to bottom as a miracle of God to signify the fact that Jesus has now accomplished our redemption. And he is alluding to this fact in verses 19 and 20, that Jesus went ahead of us to assure us that that's where we are going. This is also contrary to the religions of the world. Joseph Smith is dead and gone. Charles Taze Russell is dead and gone. Muhammad is dead and gone. Any number of gurus in Hinduism and Buddhism, they are dead and gone. All of the fanatics of religion are dead and gone. We should not put our trust in any of them, but only in Jesus Christ, only Him. Furthermore, it says in verse 20 that He has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was first mentioned in chapter 5, 510, but he will be explained in the next chapter, chapter 7. Only Melchizedek and Jesus have this unique priesthood. Only they have it. And that means that whatever Jesus accomplished as a priest, as a mediator between God and men, only Jesus has that, uniquely has that. And he has this, possesses it forever. He is the supreme high priest who holds this priesthood, this mediation, this ability to draw us to God. He's the only one who has it and he possesses it forever. Which implies and means that we cannot put our trust in anyone else. He is the only mediator. He possesses it forever. Also contrary to Mormonism, which teaches that their young men who knock on our doors, their young men who are 20 years old, they claim that those 20-year-old elders, as they call them, possess the Melchizedekian priesthood. They do not have the priesthood of Melchizedek. Only Jesus does. It says there in verse 20, he holds it forever. And he holds it forever because he does not die permanently. Jesus did not die permanently. He rose from the dead. He's alive and alive forever. Therefore, he holds his priesthood permanently. As it says in chapter 7, verse 24. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. The Aaronic priests, they died, and that's why it was necessary to transfer the priesthood of the Father to the Son, and from the Son to the Grandson, so forth. That's why that priesthood continued. But this one continues only in one person, Jesus Christ. Therefore, let's put our hope in Him. Let's put our hope in Jesus Christ, not in man, not in the fictions of man, not in the speculations of man, only in Jesus Christ. Because He has accomplished everything that relates to the promises of God for our salvation. Let's put our hope in Him and in His Word. Not the Word of men, not the world, the flesh, and the devil, not the riches of the world, not the fame and the fortune and the fun of the world, but only in Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says.
Amen.